Hello, good afternoon. This is uh, part nine, I believe we're at, of our recordings about introduction to Lutheranism, um, kind of a catechetical instruction uh, for what we believe as Lutherans. And today, we, with this recording, uh, we are going to explore the first article of the Apostles' Creed. And understand that we are using Luther's small catechism as the guideline for much of these instructions. And so why we are where we are is because we're going along with the um, the chief parts of the catechism. And so we are, on, like I said, the second, the first article of the Apostles' Creed, which deals with creation. And if you'd like to hear about the creeds, some of the history about it and stuff like that, check out my previous video. And I forgot to mention the previous video, if you're looking for a funny version to dealing with the challenge of the trinity uh go check out lutheran satire um they do this video was, i think it's it's from saint patrick's day a few years ago the saint patrick's bad analogies i believe it was uh so i go encourage you that you go watch and check it out it's quite humorous but anyway so here we go first article the creed so this is the um the creed the article and the definition as uh luther put forth in his small catechism so it says I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he's given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, all my members, my reason and all my senses, <clears throat> and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and pray, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So at the very heart of this particular uh, part of the catechism is the belief that God created the heavens and the earth. The, God the Father did. Um, so the verse that we're going to look at, it's probably well known by many people. This verse is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And... Here's the issue. This In our modern day, the big issue comes in, did God create the world via evolution or did God create the world by the word? And as Lutherans, or Missouri Synod Lutherans at least, we believe, teach, and confess that God created the heavens and earth with his word. And this is what scripture attests to. Um that the power that it is with the word that he created the world and not through processes. And many people, the problem with evolution from a Christian standpoint comes very, very quickly in the third in the third article, the creed. And it also comes from the problem that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it ex nihilo. What that means is out of nothing. Before, when he created, because listen, it says in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But notice, it begins without form and void. So then initially, there was nothing. 
All right. There one time was nothing. And out of nothing, God created everything with his word. He said, let there be light. And there was light, which people say, well, that's ludicrous. Who could do that? Well, obviously I can't. You can't. Not the person who's complaining could do it. Of course not. But we're talking about a divine being that could do literally anything. It's not obscene. It's not absurd. It's like, well, do you know what what would happen to the world if it created like a boom like that? Again, we're talking about a divine being who created the laws of nature, the laws of existence. I mean, we're talking, it is not, if he, there is a God, which I believe there is, and I believe there's good reason to believe there is. If there is a God, there's a lot of ways to deal with some of that like incredulity. It's just like, what? That can't be right. It can't happen that way. But again, we're talking about an all-powerful God. So there's that's kind of, I know that's a, it's a cop-out, and I admit that. But it's I mean it's the best thing I can give you right now. What I can tell you, and even the people will say, what about the fact that the world looks like, what about the fact that the world is so much older? I mean, the Bible, if you go by the book of Genesis, if you go by scripture, the world is not millions and millions, it's billions of years old. It's actually thousands of years old. And again, the question comes, is like, well, how can that be? Well, what's, which one's right, the book of Genesis, the Bible, or scientists? And the answer is, I, again, I'm going to side with the Bible. And you think, well, why does the world, but why do scientists say the world is billions of years old? See, here's the thing is when a scientist dates things, dates trees or rocks or fossils or things like that, they're not dating the consequent. They're not, they don't have, when they come up to a, you know, a fossil of a T-Rex, the T-Rex doesn't have stamped on it. 64 billion BC. So to let you know when it was, um, when it came from, it doesn't have that. Instead, what they do is they 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 have all kinds of scientific. They look at the carbon dating, the radioactive dating. You know, they look all they do all that dating the these methods to figure out its age. But the thing is, they're not actually coming up with a date. What they're doing is coming up with the consequence of 64 million years worth of history. Now, here's the thing. If you're creating a world, would you create it, everything infant? Would you create everything? Would you create, I mean, Adam and Eve, were they babies when they were created? Were the trees all, the trees and the grass just seedlings? You know, was the mud not mud dirt? Was the water just a bunch of hydrogen and oxygen molecules waiting to come together? No, he created everything old and mature. There were trees, there were bushes, there were rocks, there were mountains. There's all these type of things that existed. They existed old. Why? Because so it could sustain itself. All right? So why is it that the world appears to be old? Simply explanation is that God created the world old. Again, is it a cop-out? Yeah, but it's also somewhat logical. 
I mean, would you, like I said, would you create the world in, full of infants? No. You would create it old. It makes more sense. I mean, I play, you know, I, I play games like SimCity or whatever, like those old games. They started out already with an earth. And it doesn't take, you just sit and click and do, 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 the building builds, you know? Um, the other problem, so here comes the fundamental problem of evolution. And the fundamental problem is with evolution is that death is natural in evolution. Death has always existed. It's just the way it is. Evolution needs death. But as Christians, we teach that that death was a consequence of fall into sin. That death isn't natural. That we are not designed to die. We are created to live forever. But as a result of our sinfulness, of our rebellion against God, um, specifically what you read in Genesis chapter 3, man has fallen into sin, and from sin came death. See, when Jesus told not Jesus, sorry. When the Lord, which actually is the second person of the Trinity, another topic. But when the person, when the Lord said to Adam and Eve that if you partake of this fruit in the midst of the garden, you shall die, it's not much of a threat if they're going to die anyways. It's a, it's a caution. It's a warning because they're right at that point. They are destined to live to not die. But by partaking of that fruit, they're destined to death. And see, that's the reason death is a tragedy. See, if you're an evolutionist, there's if you're truly 100% consistent evolutionist, death is not a tragedy. Death isn't sad. Death is just death. It just happens. If you're 100% consistent in your evolutionary thinking, um, Evil, even evil doesn't ex exist. There is no meaning, no definition to right and wrong. And I find that many atheists are wildly inconsistent because they're so strongly evolution, evolutionists, stro strongly believe that everything pretty much happens by chance. And yet, what do they do when a school shooting happens? I'm using something really big, but it happens. Right away, they want, a, want gun control. Why? Is it? It's because they know that that's evil, that there's something horribly wrong with kids getting shot in the school, in schools. But if you're truly consistent in your evolutionary thinking, you'd say, well, just survival of the fittest. And so the only real reason for a gun control is to survive? Not because of any moral reasoning, but just simply survival. See, evolutionists, when you really press them, you will see they have a morality. They have an ethic. They may not have the same ethics as you as a Christian may have, but they have ethics. And it's ultimately inconsistent with, ev with an evolutionary worldview. If you're an evolutionist, there is no reason for morality. There's no reason for right and wrong. Everything happens as a result of nature, of chaos, of random chance, the strong versus the weak. But in Christianity, we are telling you there's a reason why this happened.
man fell into sin. And when man fell into sin, all of creation was affected. The book of Romans talks about even creation was subjected to the effects of man's sin. So creation, when we talk about God created the heavens and the earth, we believe that God the Father did it. This the evolution does not work. It is not compatible with Christianity. You have, in fact, if you believe in evolution, then you don't need Jesus. Because if you believe in evolution, then death is natural, and Jesus does not have to come to conquer death. Death isn't a thing to be conquered. Death is just a thing if you're an evolutionist. But we all know it. Death isn't right. We feel the pain and the sorrow when somebody leaves. And it's not a survival of the fittest thing. It's not like, well, you know, I would have been so much better off if such and such person didn't die. I think many of us get along okay after someone we love dies. We struggle with it. We grieve. But we eventually get going. And honestly, I mean, for many people, especially when they when the person um, reaches a certain point where they're really weak and frail, you know, they're having to be in nursing homes and all sort of things are needed to take care of for them. It's almost a relief for them. I mean, it sounds bad, but it's true. There's almost a sense of relief when someone when those when people die in that situation. But yet. There's still sorrow. There's grief that that person had to go through those years. And there's the grief that they're not there anymore. It doesn't make sense that we grieve. It doesn't make sense that we know what's wrong. We know it should be this way. And Genesis 1 through 3 answers why it is this way. It's a consequence of the fall into sin. Um, evolution does not give an answer. Evolution dodges the answer and this actually goes into the whole the entire issue of pro the problem of evil um, if you notice in the in Luther's meaning to the catechism it's to the first article the creed he says he God the Father defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil so the question comes well why is there evil in the and I'm going to tell you, both the, Christian, the evolutionists, the creationists, the Christian, um, we struggle with this problem of evil. No matter what worldview you are in, you, you, you have to struggle with this. You have to face the fact that there is evil in the world. And the, the existence of sin answers why there's evil in the world. But the real question is, so why does God allow it to persist? Why doesn't he just end it? And why does he let seemingly allow some people to suffer greater evils than others? Why? There's so many why questions when it comes to the problem of evil. And again, this is going to go, it's going to sound like a cop-out, but here's the thing. Usually, okay, so the argument usually against God in dealing with the problem of evil. So they'll say that there is evil in the world. So God is good. God is, God is all good. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. And yet there is evil in the world. So the problem is, is either, and so they say that can't be true. That doesn't, that's not compatible. If God is good, 
So if there's evil in the world, then God either is not good, and therefore he allows it to happen because he's not good, or God is not all-knowing, and so he doesn't he's not he doesn't know when evil's gonna happen, so he's not able to prevent it. Or um he is not all powerful, and therefore he knows it's coming. He's good, but he doesn't have the power to stop it. And the answer simple is actually we don't think thoroughly through that all-knowing aspect. When we say that God all is all-knowing, he knows um every little detail of every minute of every second of hour, every hour of every day of every year of every decade and century. He knows it all. He knows what's going on in every place, every state, county, country, continent, planet, solar system, galaxy, wherever in the universe. He knows what's going on in every little bit of it, right down to the tiniest of molecules. He knows what's going on. And he's in control and orchestrating the, what has happened before and what is going to happen. He knows how everything is going to cause everything else to happen. He knows every little itty-bitty detail. And we can't even begin to comprehend or grasp what he knows. And so the problem of evil, yes, it is a problem. It's difficult to deal with. But the simple answer we as a Christian say is, I don't know why this happened. I know why there's evil. We know it's because of sin. But why God allows these things to happen to a specific person? Or why did he allow this evil or that evil? I don't know. But I know that our God is loving. He is merciful. He is just. He is all good. He is all powerful. And he knows more than I could ever possibly fathom. Therefore, we trust that he knows what he is doing. Again, this is a cop-out, yes. But it's also a logical cop-out. If we're dealing with a being, if God indeed is all-knowing, then it is not unreasonable to think he knows something about the evil and the suffering in the world that we don't. And yes, he does guard us against evil. Um, there is so much evil, so much bad that we do not become victims of because he protected us. And, and so in this creed, in this first article of the creed, it talks about what God gives us. And it keeps us mindful that he gives us our body and soul, eyes, ears. So body and soul, this is, um, what does it mean to be a human? So this is a confession that we are both body and soul. So in the previous video, I talked about Gnosticism. Gnostics taught that humans, that the physical is evil. And so they say that we do not have a body, that we are not a body. We are a soul. We have a body. That's what they'd argue. And the goal in life is to escape the body and be to live merely as a soul. And this even goes into um, some afterlife issues that we're going to talk about more when we get to the third article of the Creed. But at the core of this is this teaching and confession that we are not, this is not me, what's me, the real me is the inner me. But what we are saying is that God has created us as both, body and soul. Both of them are part of who we are. This is why death is so tragic, because when a person dies, their body and soul are separated, all right, even for the Christian. 
So God created us to be both body and soul as one. And so this also means that your body has influence on who you are. For example, if you are tall, you, you have a different vision that view than other people. Um, and if you don't think your body and soul are connected, just want to know a really good way to test it. Take your thumb and a hammer and go smash. I guarantee it. You're going to scream in pain. And you're going to and then tell me that your body and soul have no connection. They clearly do. You could you feel pain. That is your body and soul working in unison. Um, this also deals with gender, male and female. There is a definite male, female, man, woman. As you know, we talked about this when I talked about homosexuality in, the, in a previous video. Um, but God created men and women distinctly different. He created man and woman to complement one another. All right. Um, and this is also dealing with why some women are able to do certain things that men are not. Men, men have are allowed to do things or permitted to do things that women are, and same thing, vice versa. Men and women have vocations that are unique to male and female. All right. And so this again is part of God's design for creation. And uh, the key verse in this regard is let's see here the first corinthians chapter 10 i believe no chapter 11 sorry first corinthians chapter 11 it says every man who prays or prophesies Actually, go all the way back to verse 2. So it says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut off her cut her hair short but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of god but woman is the glory of man for man was not made from woman but woman from man Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought not ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the Lord, women, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. 
If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. At the core of this re this reading, this deals with a lot of the head coverings issue. Um, and I should note that a lot of the head covering issue has a deal is kind of cultural. Um, head coverings are in Corinth was to have your head covered was a sign that you are married. Um, so specifically, this is a charge to wives, not just women in general. So wives are to have their head covered because, um, in, like I said, in Corinth, if your head was covered, that meant you were married. If you were not, if you were married and your head wasn't covered, that was kind of seen as a sign of infidelity. So, and part of that is, and there's some other details dealing with hair in particular, um, but actual head coverings. You know, like this, um, those are cultural. In terms of hair, that's maybe another discussion for another time. But the main thing here is the big major issue about man, the relationship between man and woman. Man is the head of the wife. So the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So this is talking about the order of creation. God designed it for man and woman to be different, to be unique, to be distinct from one another. And this will have applications when we get to um, later videos. So God created us body and soul, and male and female is the most obvious example of this. Um, there's other other ways. Um, you know, simple something as simple as um, age affects how how you how you are as a per how you function affects your vocation, things like that. So, and here's the final thing is so. With all this stuff, so God created us these ways. He created us as we are, with body and soul, eyes, ears. He gives us everything. So for which, as it says at the end, it is our job to give thanks, to give praise to him for this. This is why one of the reasons why we come for worship is to give thanks and praise to God for the many material blessings, physical blessings he's given us. Um, and also what I'm going to deal with in the second article. But... And the third article, for that matter. But here's the thing. This is something that there are many churches that make fortune telling you that if you believe the right way, if you put the right amount of money in the offering plate, if you're a good enough person, then God is going to give you everything you want. He's going to give you to your heart's content, bless you up to your heart's content. But that's not biblical. Jesus actually tells you that the more faithful you are, the more you'll be persecuted. So does, and Paul echoes this in his letter to Timothy. To be a Christian, to be bold in the faith, does not mean that life is going to be hunky-dory. It actually means suffering. So what we have in this first article of the Creed is actually telling you that God does all these things only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. So in other words, the reason why some people are wealthy or not wealthy and another isn't, I don't know. That's it's part of their vocation, it's part of their calling in life. But it has nothing to do with you. It has to God to do with God's divine fatherly goodness and mercy. That's why you have what you have. Everything you have. You cannot, this whole thing of, Praying the right prayer or giving the right offering. 
in order to get God to give you what you want. That is not biblical, right? God gives you what he gives you out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, which actually is a good thing. Because if you look two videos prior to this, I went through the Ten Commandments. And you look through the Ten Commandments, you realize if it was based upon my merit, my worthiness, I wouldn't have life itself. And yet, in spite of my sinfulness, my wretchedness, God continued to continues to daily bless me and keep me in various ways, as he does you, in spite of your sin. He, out of fatherly goodness and mercy, blesses you. Just like his earthly parents do. Whether the biological parents or foster parents or whatever, you may have been just a rotten person. And your parents st still care for you. Made sure you had a bad, warm bed, good food to eat, things like that. So else, I mean, and I know not everyone has been blessed with those kind of parents. Some people have rotten parents. I get that. But kind of imagine if you, for those of you who have had, are blessed with good parents, just think about the ways that they provided for you when you didn't deserve it. And that is but a small glimpse of what your Heavenly Father continuously does for you. So that's pretty much the first article of the creed. God created the heavens and the earth. He gave, created you with a body and soul. And he gives you everything, your eyes, ears, clothing, everything you have, not out of any worthiness or goodness in you, but out of divine fatherly goodness and mercy. That is the core of the first article of the creed. The next video, we'll come back and we'll talk about the second article of the creed, specifically about Jesus, our Savior. God bless.